Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Beatles expert and author Bruce Spizer will be the guest on the Goldmine Magazine podcast this episode. Welcome, this is Pat Prince, editor of Goldmine Magazine, and Bruce Spizer will be here to talk about his new book, The Beatles, Get Back to Abbey Road. And for all you Beatles fans, diehards, and even Beatles beginners, Bruce and I will talk about his book and will binge on everything Abbey Road. It's definitely worth the listen. We'll be right back after this message. Hey, I'm Ronald Webb, and this is Patrick Prince. And together we host the Goldmine Radio Hour, the show that features the latest issue of Goldmine, the music collector's magazine. Tune in Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on CygnusRadio.com. Well, thanks, Bruce Spizer, for coming on the podcast. And the title of your new book is... The Beatles get back to Abbey Road. Um, I like the pun there, Bruce. That's that's nice how you put well, it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was thinking about it, and I thought, well, you know, how how do you do Abbey Road in the get back sessions? Do you do it in one book or two? And then I realized one book would be too big. And I thought, though, that, um, you know, it was part of the story in that when you think of what the Beatles were doing at the beginning of the year, they're at Twickenham Film Studios rehearsing for a TV show that never happens. George temporarily leaves the group. They move over to Apple, and they record there in the basement and on the roof. And then they're over at Trident Studios, and then you know they're over at Olympic, and they're at Abbey Road, and they have George Martin producing, and he goes on vacation, and you get Chris Thomas for a while, and then... Glenn Johns is there, and he's not really producer, but he is a producer. And, you know, this is a very nomadic existence. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, they decide to, you know, get back to Abbey Road. And starting July 1, uh, the Beatles begin to record what would be the album Abbey Road. And then, of course, the book literally covers the Get Back single through the Abbey Road album. So thus the pun, the Beatles get back to Abbey Road. It's nice. Now, obviously, the book was written for just in time for the 50th anniversary of Abbey Road, the album itself. Yeah, and, people have accused me of uh, of doing that deliberately, and yes, that's correct. Well, it's relevant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Our contributor, Jillian Gar, gave it five stars and compared it to the book of uh, Kenneth, Kenneth Womack's book, uh, Solid State, The Story of Abbey Road and the end of the Beatles, and that only got three stars, and she preferred your book because she felt it was more thematic, the way that it was set up. And well, you did- and I mean, and I, and I appreciate the, 
the uh, five star review, of course, and I think uh, you know Ken has written some some excellent yes. books on George Martin, and uh, and Ken and I approach the album differently as one would expect. And yep. uh, Ken is a you know is a musical scholar, and I'm a historian, so obviously we're going to approach the same album differently. And Ken and I talked about our books coming out at the same time and felt they weren't competing, but felt they were complementary. Yes, I, t- I tend to agree with that. And, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast episode will know who you are. But just just in case some um, don't know who you are, just listeners that are new to your writing, maybe you could just give a few minutes about you mentioned that you consider yourself a historian. Maybe you could give yourself give a little background on yourself and how you became what I think you are, which is a Beatles expert. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, about 20-some-odd years ago, um, I ended up writing a book on the Beatles called The Beatles Records on VJ, and, and the whole point of the book was just to cover a little-known area that had a lot of misinformation about how the Beatles' first records were released in America. And being an attorney and also a CPA, I was able to research the lawsuits involving Capitol Records and VJ and review royalty statements and things, and from that, um, you know, correct a lot of misinformation about how the Beatles ended up on VJ. You know, Capitol turned them down four times, and you know, and things of that nature. And also, I had access to company documents from VJ. The company had been placed in bankruptcy. And I was able to get these documents because the person who bought Fiji out of bankruptcy put them in storage and didn't destroy these documents. Mm. So I was able to get sales figures and things you normally wouldn't get. The book came out and it was a critical success and people said, well, when's your Capital book coming out? So the next thing you know, <laughs> I'm doing books on the Beatles on Capital Records and I realize about after page 400, gee, I better make that two books, one on the singles, one on the albums. And even before those books were released, but you know, after I'd announced them, people were like, well, I can't wait till you do the book on Apple because my favorite part of the Beatles' career are their Apple records. So, you know, the next thing I know, I'm doing this whole series <laughs> and uh, took a little bit of a sidetrack to do a book called The Beatles Are Coming, which talked about uh, the birth of Beatlemania in America and its crazy evolution. And on that book, I had a lot of a lot of fun because I felt the press was an important part of the story, mm-hmm. and uh, I was fortunate enough to interview three of my childhood heroes, and lest you think I'm going to name some Beatles, no, uh, Walter Cronkite, Edward Newman, and Mike Wallace, who were, mm. you know, all fabulous reporters, and, um, you know, and Mr. Cronkite even uh, wrote the foreword to that book, and so, you know, and after I did that, I said, okay, well, I need to kind of tie it all together because there were some Beatle American records that didn't cover, uh, you know, those on the Swan label, the United Artists soundtrack to uh, A Hard Day's Night, the German uh, recordings that came out on MGM, Atco, and Decca, and then, oh yeah, I probably could cover the Capitol theme albums from the 70s and 80s, and I thought, okay, I like puns, so I would call the book the Beatles' swan song, <laughs> She Loves You and Other Records. And the book was going to be my swan song. I'm never going to do another book on the Beatles. Thank you very much. That was a great plan. And then all of a sudden, um, a guy named Frank Daniels, who had assisted me with the books at times, said, you know, nobody's ever done a definitive book on the Beatles records in the U.K. Uh, you know, we should do one. And I said, well, we're not British. And well, but eventually he convinced me that we should do one. And we did, called the Beatles records on Parlophone. 
So now it was done. You know, completely I've retired. Thank you very much. And the anniversary of Sergeant Pepper's coming up, and I wrote an essay, and it was a fairly substantial essay. And I realized it was too long for like Beetle Fan or Gold Mine or you know or anybody like that because it was just extremely long. And also, I realized a magazine probably wouldn't be in a position to have the kind of images I wanted to go with it. And I thought, well, what if I use that as the basis of a book? And then got other people to contribute because, quite frankly, I didn't have enough time to do it mm-hmm. to have it ready for the uh, 50th anniversary of Sergeant Pepper. And I got the idea to get people, uh, you know, to write about different areas. Uh, two people from Beetle Fan Magazine, Bill King and Al Sussman. Uh, Frank Daniels, once again, helping me out, and Pierce Hemmingson, who's in Canada, to write about what was going on in Canada. So the book was called um, The Beatles and Sgt. Pepper, A Fan's Perspective, and fans Mm -hmm. being F-A-N-S apostrophe, because it was more than one fan. I had a section in the book, which uh, where basically on my website, and after making calls and things, just ask people, you know, let me know what Sgt. Pepper meant to you. What was it like when it came out? And from that, it uh, it got some really nice uh, responses from mm-hmm. people, including a guy who was um, in the Royal Guardsman. And I loved his little story because he was like driving to a recording session to record Snoopy's Christmas. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he hears Sergeant Pepper. Mm. I can't imagine what was going through his head when he finally got to that session. And I realized musicians are fans, too. And I was fortunate enough to get uh, a nice thing from Pat Denizio, the Smithereens, and also, um, you know, to get something from Peter Tork of the Monkees and uh, Billy Joel. And so it was really fun getting these, and I thought, you know, the book came out, and it was like, okay, the White Album's my favorite Beatles album, so I have to do a book on the White Album. <laughs> so thus became the Beatles' White Album and the launch of Apple, and once again, I wanted to do the fan recollections and got some nice uh, fan recollections again. And then, of course... How could I not do a book on Abbey Road? Yeah, you got it. And that's it. kind of the way it is. And, and the books have the same the same basic format in that, uh, you know, I'll write about the American perspective and the British perspective. Um, I learned a lot about the British perspective doing the Parlophone book. And so, you know, obviously I didn't. I grew up in the United States and not the U.K., but what I did was spend a lot of time at the British Library going through the music magazines. And unlike the U.S. where, you know, we had Crawdaddy and Rolling Stone just starting out at that time, yeah. really. But in the U.K., you had these established magazines. You know, you had Melody Maker. You had New Musical Express. You had Disc and Music Echo. You had Record Mara. And then you also had an industry magazine uh, as well, Record Research. Uh, so you had all these magazines that were constantly writing about the Beatles, Mm-hmm. And from those, it was, you know, extremely helpful. And I was able to kind of take it from the perspective of if you were living in the U.K. at the time, you know, and you went down to the newsstand on Friday after school, you know, what would you be reading? And and that's kind of, you know, the British perspective. I got Pierce Hemmingson to do the Canadian perspective and then Al Sussman to kind of write what was going on in the world at that time in the news and culture Frank Daniels to write about, you know, it wasn't just the Beatles. A lot of great music was released that right, year. Right. And they had these great movies that came out. And then also, for this book, there are always like some floating topics. And in this case, it was 
the Paul is dead rumor. You have to cover that. Yeah. And, you know, and so that was a, the opening part of the book. And then the next part of the book with these fan recollections and the final part, the recording of the songs themselves. And, uh, you know, on a song-by-song approach as opposed to a day-by-day approach to the sessions. And, um, you know, when the formula, it's a lot of fun. The books are the same size. They're all <clears throat> nine-by-nine. And they all are, you know, about a little under 200 pages, and it's full color throughout, with the exception, of course, of where pictures were originally black and white. Yeah. We're not going to colorize them, of course. They're all 9 by 9 huh? They're all the same size, which is good. Yep. You know, as a collector, I'd like stuff like that, because I could put it on my shelf, and they're, you know, it makes it kind of tidy, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the, the other books were larger, yeah. Uh, you know, but this was going to be called the album series, and albums yeah. are squares, yeah. so I thought, well, yeah. the books will be square. Yeah, I like that very much. And I have to give a shout-out to Frank Daniels. He's a contributor to Goldmine. He oh, does, absolutely. He's, he's a treasure. Is, yeah, he's a he treasure. He really is. He, he has uh, incredible knowledge, and there are times when Frank and I will come across, like, you know, Frank and I were doing some stuff on Pepper and the packaging, and, and Frank comes on, and, you know, that little card, you know, the cutout thing, of his pic- image of who's supposed to be Sergeant Pepper. And Frank's like, well, you know, let's see if we can find out what that's based on. And, of course, Frank did. You know, and, and he comes up with these, these wonderful little facts, and sometimes I'll kid him because I'll say, Frank, you and I are probably two of the five people in the world that are really going to appreciate this. But, of course, we find out it's a lot more than five people that yes. appreciate these types of details. And, uh, you know, so uh, being, you know, as he is a college professor and, you know, and I consider myself a historian. So, you know, we get along great and have fun working together on these little odds and ends and trying to come up with little weird twists that people may have wondered about but didn't really know the answer to. Well, I love how this book on Abbey Road puts you in 1969, and you try to get, you try to let the reader surround, feel like they're in 1969, with the culture that's going on in the U.S., um, especially, you know, Joe Namath, the Mets, the moon landing, yeah. Woodstock, and of course, the war in Vietnam. And yeah. uh, you have to have that background um, if you're talking about this record, because a lot of that stuff influenced, uh, you know, maybe not the Mets and Joe Namath, but it influenced the listeners. And of course, Vietnam influenced the Beatles. What Absolutely. They thought about you know, it. you've got the Beatles you know, recording revolution where you've literally got revolution in the streets of Paris. Yep. You know, and, and a lot of the things, the juxtapositioning, you know, you've got, um, you know, the Beatles are in the studio working on Here Comes the Sun and Project Apollo, named after the God of the Sun, is lifting off to take men to the moon. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, a lot of cool little coincidences, you know, like that seem to happen. And it's always interesting to you know, to see how that works out. So, uh, you know, I always enjoy looking at what was going on in the world because, as you say, it it not only influenced the listeners, but mm-hmm. it also influenced the recording artists as well. Well, you also back it up with, um, you know, great images. Like, you know, for instance, there's a TV Guide centerfold, the Rolling Stone cover with a headline, uh, Inside Apple Corpse, yeah. which is out. I love that pun. You know, and then, you know, is Paul dead? You know, yeah. Paul is not dead. It tells us, it says, inside Apple Court, Paul is not dead. You know, <laughs> well, that's a relief, you know. <laughs> yeah, they tie corpse to the, yeah, nice segue. Um, they also, you know, you also have these 
images of what was going on. You know, you have uh, what Joe Namath on the cover of several magazines, the Mets on the cover, Woodstock. You know, so it's good to see, like you said before, what the press was saying about mm-hmm. the day to day. And then the album cover becomes a cultural icon in itself. And I was going to ask you your opinion because I, I spoke to the art director, John Kosh of Apple Records, yeah. and he thought there wasn't much thought put into it, like, you know, Sergeant Pepper. That Basically, that was the charm of it, really. It was just cr- crossing the street to and from Abbey Road <laughs> Studios. And, yeah, and, you know, and people ask me and they'll say, well, look, you know, what is it about this album? And it's like, look, when it first came out, some people mocked it. Uh, Ed yeah. Ward reviewed it in Rolling Stone. Uh, there were two reviews in Rolling Stone. We'll have to get back to that in a minute. Yeah. But anyway... You know, it's, look, you know, the Beatles are crossing Abbey Road. Yeek, you know, big deal. And uh, and other people were like, you know, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, they couldn't be bothered to do a real cover. I mean, the Beatles are getting lazy. We get this elaborate Sergeant Pepper, then the White Album. Yeah. When they couldn't even be bothered to, to have a cover to it. And then this, they're just walking across the street. But it missed the point. What made it so great was here were four people that we placed on this pedestal. They were like musical gods to us. Yet they, like everyone else, when a recording session's over, they just walk across the street just <laughs> like we do. Right. And then, you know, hey, I can do that. And then it was cool because, you know, you could go to London and, and do what they did. And, yeah. you know, and then all of a sudden cell phones come out and you can, you know, everybody can take your picture doing it. And it was great. And it's an iconic image of the 60s, this iconic cover. And, of course, you know, it was uh, nominated in one album of the year and then the Grammy Awards, right? Wrong. It wasn't even nominated for album cover of the year. Which is incredible. And, and that's the fun part about it. You know, well, some cover called American the Beautiful One. How many people remember the cover of that <laughs> album today? Well, it was so simple that I think that people had to say, okay, there must be meaning to this. And that's where that Paul is dead conspiracy yeah. came. You know, it th- was. I mean, you know, you you look at the album cover, and okay, so if, if you do believe Paul is dead, uh, you know, you're going to find some wonderful clues in that album cover, yes. and people had fun with that, and they you know, really to did. show you how absurd it could be, they would come in and then say, okay, well, look at the way they're dressed, you know, uh, John is dressed in white, so that's like, you know, represents heaven or God or whatever, <laughs> Ringo's in a black suit, uh, and an undertaker would wear that, or... <laughs> Or someone conducting a service. George is in blue jeans. Grave diggers wear blue jeans. And, of course, Paul is barefoot and people are buried without their shoes. Well, not always, folks. No. Sometimes people are buried with shoes. <laughs> but nonetheless, and then, oh, look, Paul's holding the cigarette in his right hand. Well, Paul's left-handed, so that must mean that isn't Paul. Oh, and then if you look at the way they're walking, Paul's out of step with the others, so that's a clue. And then, of course, the Volkswagen Beetle. That you was know, the creepiest that's a, one. Yeah, that's, and that was. And of course, this is, stuff is pure coincidence. The Beatles didn't arrange for somebody to park no. a Beetle there. It was a guy who lived in the flat next to the studios, and he happened to park it there that day. Yeah. And, the, and, the, uh, and it had this license plate number on it, and people looked at that, and they said, oh, well, look at that license plate. It's, you know, 28IF. And what that means is that if Paul were alive, he'd be 28 years old and yeah. dead. Well, but the problem was Paul would have been 27 years old, you know, but don't look, you know, if the facts get in the way of a rumor. And then some people said they had this L 
A-M-W. What did that mean? It yeah. means Linda McCartney weeps. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah but why would Linda McCartney weep if Paul died in 1966? She didn't know the guy that died, so why would she weep? <laughs> she didn't meet Paul in 67. So, I mean, you know, it's just fun stuff like that. Well, the whole thing you know, got it, started, right, because it was like a lampoon. Uh, a university editor just wrote it as sort of... Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's hard to pin the exact thing, but what we know is that at some time... In 1969, and you know, the summer, uh, you know, as we're getting near the school year, some people apparently started noticing these different things that uh, from the Beatle record album covers and the songs themselves. And there was a editor of a newspaper, uh, Drake University, and he went to a party, and this woman had kind of cornered him at the party and told him about these things, and so he found it interesting, and he assigned it to one of the student <laughs> reporters, and he writes this article called, Is Paul Dead? And it comes out in the Drake Times Delphic, you know, on September 17th, 1969, and he goes through some of the clues, and there are a lot of things in there that are just outright wrong. Right. But nonetheless, it's an interesting read. Another university puts out almost the same article. The woman there literally plagiarizes it, and it comes out, and you know, and, and this is the days. Look, we don't have the internet, uh, but what we do have is a telephone. Yes. So people are calling their friends at other universities. Hey, look, you know, I know you're a big Beatles fan. I read this thing, you know, about Paul McCartney being dead. Yeah. And so, you know, this happens. And the next big thing, you know, so we've got college newspapers and the telephone. And the next big thing that falls is radio. There's a guy, Russ Gibbs, in Detroit. He's doing his Sunday afternoon show. He's Uncle Gibbs. It's FM radio. Rap with Uncle Gibb, you know, Uncle Russ. And so some guy calls in and says, well, what do you think about this thing of Paul being dead? And the guy, I don't know what this guy's talking about. And he says, well, look, you know, if you can get a copy of the White Album, you know, and put on Revolution 9, and in the part where it goes number 9, you know, can you play the turntable backwards and listen to what you hear? So he does. And he hears something that sounds like, turn me on, Debin, turn me on, Debin. And it really does sound like that. And then he also says, that, look, and, you know, if you take the end of Strawberry Fields on the Magical Mystery Tour album, toward the end, John says, I buried Paul. Of course, we later learn, he says, cranberry sauce. But if you want it to be, I buried Paul, it sounds like I buried Paul. It is funny. That and, is, uh... you know, and there's this student, Fred Labor, and he's listening in his car radio, and he hears this. And he had been assigned the task to write a review of Abbey Road. And he figures, well, rather than writing a boring review of Abbey Road, I'm going to write this, you know, parody thing about this is Paul Dead thing. And it's clearly written tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Yet like National people Lampoon, read right. it, yeah. and they believe it. Yeah. And, you know, and he puts, he makes up stuff, you know. He says that, you know, that the word walrus is corpse in Greek. Well, <laughs> it's not. But he says it is. Yeah. And, of course, we don't have Google, so we can't Google it to see if it's right. And all of a sudden, everybody picks it up in the newspapers, and the next thing you know, mainstream media is picking it up. And this guy's giving interviews, and, of course, he's not about to say, look, I made it all up. I mean, you know. So. And then you got these magazine publishers that put out special editions about Paul oh, yeah. Bingham. <laughs> and then, you know, and in New Orleans, you know, where I grew up, you know, uh WTIX is, you know, the big AM powerhouse stations talking about it. And, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm listening to the radio and they've got, 
you know, and here we have a new song for you, a WTIX exclusive, Brother Paul by Billy Shear and the All-Americans. <laughs> and so I'm listening to this song, you know, you know, I mean, you, you listen to that thing and oh my goodness, you know, here we are with that, you know. You know, Brother Paul, I'm crying. Are you really lying every night and day beneath the cold and lonely stone? And it's not a bad song. And so, you know, and to do this book, I actually interviewed the program director over at WTIX, and he mm. said a former DJ and promo man uh, came into him and said, look, if you're doing this Paul special, you need a theme song. And so Rob Robin arranged for a musician, New Orleans musician, to go into the studio and record it. What was fun was that when I looked at the label, I noticed that it was written by R. Saxon and El Capello. And I wondered if El Capello would be Lenny Capello, who some of uh, your listeners to the podcast may remember. He's a New Orleans artist that had minor hits in the 60s, late 50s, early 60s, with Cotton Candy and 90-pound Weakling. And uh, so I started doing a little bit of research, and it turned out, yes, it was indeed Lenny Capello who recorded the song, and, you know, they just called themselves Billy Shear and the All-Americans, and uh, Lenny mm. Capello, he also, a lot of people, if you remember the song Double Shot of My Baby's Love, um, that he was one of the three vocalists on the original version of that song. And so he had quite an interesting background. Uh, and and this was not the only such record. There was a one that was called The Ballad of Paul. Jeez. And once again, a real group, in this case, a uh, group from Baltimore, Bob Brady and the Concords, and they recorded it under the name The Mystery Tour. And then uh, Jose Feliciano, of all people, put out a song called So Long, Paul, uh, but I guess decided better to use his real name, so it was by Worbley Finster, and that was really Jose Feliciano. And if you look at the record, you know, it's co-written by his producer, Rick Jarrett, and also, you see right on there, you know, yeah. Jay Feliciano. Yeah. Uh, you know, and Capitol had done a song. They had put out a song by Terry Knight. Yes, Terry Knight, you know, that of Grand Funk Railroad's producer and manager uh, called St. Paul. And he had put this song out well before the rumor broke. And it was just, you know, about what poor Paul was going through carrying the weight of Apple's business troubles. Um, and, of course... Capital re-released it and marketed as, you know, hey, is you know, is Paul dead? So yeah. <laughs> the record industry had a lot of fun. Like none of these records sold well, but people went out and bought Abbey Road to yes. look for the clues. They bought Magical Mystery Tour. They bought the White Album, and all of a sudden you have these Beatle albums back in the charts again. You know, Abbey Road, of course, was already in the charts, and it was going to sell regardless. But you have people who had yet to buy Magical Mystery Tour and the White Album go out and buy them specifically to have these clues. So it was a sales bonanza for the Beatles. And, of course, people then said, well, okay, if Paul isn't dead, then the Beatles deliberately did this. And, of course, the Beatles were like, no, 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 we didn't plan this. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think it reminds me, and people, you know, because it was kind of like the executive of Coke, you know, where... I mean, you know, the beverage, not cocaine, folks. The beverage where they launched this thing. How many people remember when New Coke was launched? Mm. And it was a total disaster. And so they came back and they came out with old Coke again. And people <laughs> asked the CEO, they said, this was a brilliant marketing plan. You know, you guys did this to revitalize the Coke brand. And he said, we're not that smart. Serendipity. You know? <laughs> 
you know, we we put it out. It was a bad idea. You know, no, this. You know, so it's really kind of fun. And you know, and I have to admit, at the time, I thought maybe the Beatles were behind it. Yeah. Because there were all these clues, and then later on, when I began to realize half the clues weren't really clues, it was like, no, they weren't behind it. So. <laughs> they must have. They, they must have been. Really amused by it, though, I'm sure. I, I think so. I think Paul was very frustrated by it because, yeah. you know, he first, um, there had been a Paul is Dead rumor back in the UK in, you know, in early 66, 67, where, you know, late 66, 67, where Paul, you know, was supposedly dead. And what happened was his motor vehicle was involved in an accident on the M1. Paul yeah. wasn't in it at the time. And, you know, and Paul say, hey, I'm fine. I'm in St. John's Wood. No problem. But this time, you know, well, Americans were more determined than the Brits, I guess, to make it stick. Oh, yeah. And uh, it, it took off. And, and there are people today who still will still it. come up to me at Beatle Convention <laughs> and, and show me stuff to prove that Paul is dead. And they can't believe I just can't see it, you know. <laughs> Well, the irony is, is that Lennon got into a car accident during the making of Abbey Road. So. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so. And he and he's not dead either until he was shot. You know, right. so, I mean, it's just it's it's fun stuff to look back on, and you know, and and I, I had to conclude it in the book. You know, yeah. there's no way around it. Well, <laughs> one of my favorite parts though is the song by song. You know, you go in depth what everything the the songwriting to the. You know, production of the song, the recording of the song. It's just, I love that stuff. Um, it's really in-depth. It's fun. Um, and I agree with Jillian that there are so many different parts of it that, uh, you know, you can go to something that's serious and, you know, like you said, a historian point of view, and then you go to the fan's perspective. So yeah. it's like switching gears, and that's that's fun. Like any album where it could be eclectic and you have diff ups you know, you, different mood swings. Uh, it, it feels like that. That's You get into it more. Um, anyway. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I mean, it, it's a lot of fun doing it. I had fun tracking down some of my favorite Abbey Road parody album covers. <laughs> yes. And, uh, what was you your know, favorite? What was your favorite? Well, I mean, you know. Uh, Mine is Macklemore you know, Avenue, which, uh, you know, which is always. Yeah. That, oh, that is a great album. And yeah. that was the first one, as far as I can tell. You know, you had others that followed. Uh, not too long afterwards, um, and, um, you know, it was kind of was a building of momentum type thing. That one came out, and then there was this South African jazz group that comes ah. out with one called Amortage Road, yeah. you know, by the Hezbo Bezho group, and they show, you know, these people walking across the road in this village, and then you've got a, a group called New York City that comes out with one called Soulful Road. The Red Hot Chili Peppers decide they're going to, have their picture walking across Abbey Road wearing nothing but socks. And I mean, literally, <laughs> nothing but strategically placed socks. Yeah. You know, Snoopy's Christmas, Chuck Rock. That was, that was Abbey Roadie, I think it was called. Yeah, um, I mean, it's just, you know, fun stuff. And, you know, and then the one that I really like, and this was one that I would have known about but for a fan recollection from Mark Galloway, is Hinge and Bracket. These are these two, you know, middle-aged women that... One plays banjo, or it looks like a banjo, no, yeah, I guess banjo and one, you know, violin or whatever. And they're crossing Abbey Road, and what's brilliant about it is this picture was taken in the dead of winter. There's a gray sky, there's no green foliage, they're just these branches with no green. <laughs> and when you compare it to the real album cover, it's, it's quite a change. So, you know, that's kind of 
you know, where things go on this thing. And you're like, wow, this is... <laughs> What's funny <laughs> is, is John, really John Kasha, they tweaked the sky. The sky was kind of gray, and they made it... This was before Photoshop, obviously. Yeah, and, they did make it a little bit bluer. <laughs> when you look yes. at the original uh, pictures, uh, and those have become collectibles in themselves, yes. where Ian e. McMillan would put out these limited edition things. Yep. And, you know, we show the limited edition collection he did, and the sky is definitely made bluer there's no doubt about it yeah i think the other great thing that kosh had this idea was you know they have the space up at the top this blue space where you could easily have put abbey road right you know i could see maybe you don't need to put the beatles because everyone knows that's the beatles but the idea was we're not going to even put that there and so the album cover doesn't have a name on the top and on the back it has the beatles abbey road and you right. see this n and that's actually part of a street sign, which was NW, I think it was 7 after that, whatever the number was. There was a reviewer in Canada that thought the name of the album was Beatles Abbey Road N, <laughs> because that was what was on the back cover. And, and you know, Pierce Hemingston, my buddy up in Canada, came, you know, came across with some great stuff. The, the, the greatest thing he came up with was a review that this guy wrote of the album, and in the review he called it Abbey Lane. Interesting. Which... You know, and of course, uh, the joke was, well, he got it confused with the Beatles single, Penny Road. Yeah. <laughs> What's also funny is that fans wonder, who was that woman who passed by Abbey Road? Yeah. People still don't know who it was. <laughs> Lost to history, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and there have been people that supposedly have the actual dress, which, if you don't know who the woman was, how do you have the dress? I don't know how that works out, but... <laughs> but anyway, anyway, lastly, to, to sum it all up... Uh, what? How? How did you feel about the Beatles' fiftieth anniversary editions? Obviously, they're. Uh, I enjoyed them very much, but um, yeah. I know that I've some a, some critics were like, "Why? Why do they need to do it? They could see why they did it with Sgt. Pepper or the White Album because of the technology." But there really wasn't much to do, and we won't, we won't get into the weeds of that production wise. Um, but still, they they pulled it off with all the extra sessions and and the yeah, mix was I mean, good. Look, I'm, I'm going to tell you that I, I feel that Giles Martin has done yes. a wonderful job. And, you know, the idea behind it is, look, there's no doubt that Abbey Road was a brilliantly recorded album. It got Jeff Emmerich and Phil McDonald, you know, a Grammy. This was Jeff Emmerich's third Grammy yes. for, you know, best engineered recording non-classical. And uh, immaculate production for the day. Yes. And it, and, it, and it sounds great today, but here's the thing. What did the Beatles really want to do back in the studio that they couldn't do back in the 60s? And that was have more bass. Yes. They, in 1966, threatened to go to Stack Studios in Memphis to record what would be their Revolver album because they wanted more bass sound. And yeah. the Abbey Road engineers, you know, were able to boost the bass to an extent. And so, you know, people wanted that bass, and Giles has given it more bass. He's brought the drums up a little yep. bit more, which the Beatles also loved. And yet the clarity is still incredible. It doesn't sound muddy. No. Nope. And, um, you know, I've just been completely impressed with, I'm glad with the work he's right. done. Right. I'm glad you pointed out about the bass sound, because that is significant. Um, yep. What did you think about the extra sessions? Did you like how Her Majesty was placed in the medley and all that fun stuff? Yeah, I mean, I had heard the bootlegs, but the bootleg sound quality was terrible. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and, yeah. What, and look, as a historian, what I loved about 
the the, the long one, as it was called then. Yeah. Um, you know, you had Her Majesty in the medley, and I'd always read that you know Paul just didn't think it worked there, and no. when you listen to it, it does not work. It there. does. <laughs> and what's great about it is, you know, you you learn that process of how did they get to this, and so I found that fascinating. Yeah, it is very um, fascinating. Yeah, you know, there were great outtakes, and, and of course, my complaint is always going to be the same. I wish they had had more outtakes. Okay, but you know, for what it is, it's a great collection, a great listening experience, and um, you know, would I have liked a few more outtakes? Of course, but I'm always going to like a few more outtakes. You know, and I also I understand. Yeah, you can't give everything. So I think what a takeaway uh, what many fans will be how friendly the Beatles were to each other listening to these outtakes. You know, they thought of, you know, this time that they hated each other, you know, because a let it be was such a kind of, you know, I wouldn't call it a disaster, but (laughs) it wasn't, didn't go smoothly. And, and, you know, the thing is, is that they all were having fun with each other. You know, there's no doubt when the light went on, as they said, you know, that red light went on, you know, and, and the thing, too, was that they respected each other as musicians. Yeah. They played well together. And they also, look, recording an album is a job, just like, you know, writing a book is a job, just like editing a magazine is a job or whatever your listeners are doing. is It's a job. Uh-huh. It may be a fun job, but it's still a job. Yes. However, you know, there are times at work where you can enjoy and joke around with your yes. co-workers, and, and that's what they're doing. They're working on something, yeah, but they're joking around at times, and and it's always fun to hear that in the studio. And, uh, you know, I really am glad that they included some I of that studio too. banter. Because it, it kind of uh, dispels the rumor that uh, they hated each other. Um, yeah. They might have had, you know, things they... Um, were upset about, but uh, like all, they were a family basically. Like like all families, yeah. they feuded, and but they still really had a good, uh, like you said, a respect for each other. Well, anyway, yeah. thank you, Bruce. Um, I just want to tell the listeners they can go to Beetle.net dot net and they could buy all your books still. Right, none of them are out of print. Well, well actually, the the first four are out of print. They are. Now we have. Yeah, the uh, the VJ book, the two capital can't, books, and the Apple book have been out of print a while. But can't they get them and digitally? They can get the first three digitally. Yes, okay. That's correct. And those, and then, and they're also revised and expanded editions. So even if you have the print edition, if you get these digital editions, you do get a lot of new information and, yep. and things, which is kind of fun. And uh, we also have collectors editions of uh, some of the books still available. Uh, in the album series, uh, we're down to about maybe 60 collector's editions of Pepper. And um, we also have available, of course, for the White Album book and the Abbey Road book. And the collector's editions are limited numbers editions to about 500. And then the other thing is they'll come with, um, you know, an O-ring kind of nice cardboard slipcase and then also a bookmark and some, you know, fun posters or other extras. And, you know, you can check out on the... Uh, the website beetle.net and see what they all come with but it's it's a nice package and you know collector edition books can often be priced at 250 or 300 dollars right you know these are priced at at 100 dollars or 75 for the pepper one and you know i, I want to make it affordable to people and you know and we appreciate that uh, people should be given good value for their money 
Okay, great. Well, we'll be keeping in touch. And thanks for putting out another great book on the Beatles. Well, thank you. And I will tell you right now that there will be, at some point in time next year, a, uh, a Let It Be book. Okay. Well, I hope it's as enjoyable as this one. I'm sure it will be. Oh, thank well, you, thank Bruce. Thank you so much. I'll talk All to right. you soon. Uh, Bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bruce Spicer, for coming on the podcast episode. Go to Beetle.net if you want to get any other books by Bruce Spicer. But the one to pick up right now is The Beatles Get Back to Abbey Road. Okay, we'll see you next time on the Gold Mine Magazine podcast. And don't forget to pick up the new issue at Barnes & Noble or Books A Million. Go to goldminemag.com for further content and also get 68% off the subscription price. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.